All right, I'm going to use water from time to time. One thing you don't appreciate about Scott is your voice eventually wears out. So I got up early this morning and I practiced the sermon. So I preached it once, and that was fine. And then I preached it to the first service, and that was fine. And I'm tired all of a sudden in my voice. So one of the things I begin to appreciate about Scott is the fact that this wears you out. So I will be using water from time to time. Everything's good. I'm not going to faint. It's just good on the vocal cords. <laughs> we are coming up on November 8th. What's November 8th? Oh, you are much better than the first service. They're like, uh, yeah, <laughs> Halloween. No. Yes, it's election day. That's exactly right. <clears throat> Every four years in our country, we elect a president. There are dozens of candidates who come forward seeking to win the office. Essentially, they put their lives on hold so they can travel extensively, give speeches, debate publicly, visit privately, kiss many babies, air ads on TV, the radio, make statements, define their positions and their policies, uh, hire and fire staff, raise money, and craft their image carefully only to have the media destroy it. That is what the politicians do every four years. Uh, they have been on the election trail for many months, some even for years, and in this case it's come down to two main people. I know there's a few out there, but there are two main people who have garnered the attention of the national media, obviously the two uh, main political parties. Regardless of what you think of them, I'm not here to encourage you to vote for one or the other. Regardless of what you think of their fitness for the job, it is beyond question that they desperately want the office of President of the United States of America. Do they not? What they have put their families through to get to this point is not something that I would want to go through, which begs the question, why do they go through with it? Because after all, they are scrutinized, ridiculed, second-guessed, judged, disliked, mocked, overworked, exhausted, and prevented from having any real vacations or being anywhere by themselves completely. Right? Who wants that? If that's the only description, nobody signs up for it. Nobody. In fact, they're at the time of their lives, the two main candidates, when most people are retiring. And they're going to take on the most strenuous job they've ever had. What motivates a person to do that? You know the answer. It is the power and the glory that comes with the office of President of the United States of America. It is the power and the glory that comes with the office of the President of the United States of America. Arguably, for at least the next four years, whoever holds that office will be the greatest person in the world. Now, many other countries might argue differently, but from the influence the United States has, it's hard to argue ultimately. They will be the greatest person in the world for four years. That kind of power and glory is intoxicating, and it is why men and women will drive themselves and spend everything they can to obtain it. This thirst for power and glory is the way of our world, and it has been throughout the ages. This is nothing new. Our passage in Mark today contains the same love of power and glory. It's almost 2,000 years ago that this occurred, and yet the message is more relevant today than it's ever been. It is a timeless message. Some things have changed in 2,000 years, but the thirst for power and glory, that will never change. 
so long as we are human. Let's start with a couple of verses before this in Mark 10, 33 and 34. And let's set the stage for what we're going to learn about today. Mark 10, 33 and 34. Jesus says to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So right before our passage today, Jesus predicts his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. This is the third time in chapters 8, 9, and 10 that Jesus predicts his his death to the disciples. It should not have been a surprise to them. It should not have been. If you look at 831, 931, and now 1033 and 34, he predicts it. On each occasion, each of them, the disciples react inappropriately. (laughs) That's the kindest way I can put it. On the second occasion, after Jesus predicts his death, they argue about which of them is the greatest. And now we have the third instance, where again he predicts his suffering and death, and they respond, well, as you know, requesting something that's inappropriate. So Jesus has to confront them head on. They're simply not understanding the full details of what Jesus is saying or the implications on their lives. With that background, let's jump into our passage at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, on the heels of Jesus' statement that he's about to suffer and die, this request seems a bit out of place, to say the least. But remember something. James and John are part of the inner three, right? Peter, James, and John, the inner three who were given access to Jesus in ways that the other disciples were not. For example... Who were the three disciples that witnessed the transfiguration, which is in the prior chapter, Peter, James, and John? They were the only ones of the 12 disciples who went up the mountain with Jesus, saw Moses and Elijah, the two greatest figures of the Old Testament, join with Jesus, transfigured into dazzling white, whiter than any bleach on earth could make it, and hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Whoa. They witnessed the glory of Jesus breaking through into earth. Most of the time, it's veiled. But here's the true glory of Jesus, where he came from and where he's going. And it breaks into time and space, and they see it with their eyes. Is it little wonder that they believed that a coming kingdom would soon be there? No. They saw the king for a moment in his glory. In essence, they got a sneak peek of what the kingdom of God would look like. Now, there's a parallel account, if you're familiar with it, Matthew 19. That's where the mother of James and John makes the request. This is the same occasion. So was it the mother or was it James and John? And some like to point out, see, there's discrepancies, contradictions in the Bible. No. Easily, easily explained. The mother of James and John is a follower of Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 56, tells us she's at the cross. She's one of the women at the foot of the cross when he dies. She's there with Mary Magdalene. She's there with Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's one of those faithful women who ministered to his needs all through the time that he was on his earthly ministry. She knows Jesus personally. She has a relationship with him. And you could easily see whether it was the prompting of James and John or whether it was the mother you can easily see how maybe send the mom. Maybe Jesus would have a harder time saying no to mom. Because there are some who believe 
that she was actually the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which would mean what? That James and John were Jesus' cousins, first cousins. Regardless of what the relationship exactly was, the relationship is close. And so mom comes. Now whether the boys put her up to it, whether the boys said, Mom, would you, uh, <clears throat> would you go talk to him? Or whether mom came up with the idea and the boys asked, either way, are they as guilty? Absolutely. They could have just as easily said, let's not do this, Mom, bad idea. Or I, I don't think this is the right thing to do. The fact that they go along with it or that they prompt it is exactly the same. It is exactly the same. So one writer tells the account perhaps from her making the actual request. The other writer tells the account from the fact that they went along with it. At worst, they prompted her to do it, but at best they went along with it. Either way, it's the same in the final analysis. It's their request. They are responsible for making this request. It's just two views of the exact same incident. James and John make their request, by the way, without Peter. Did you notice that? Peter, one of the inner three. What do you think his reaction was? I'll tell you what his reaction was. It was to tell Mark about this account. We know that Mark's gospel is Peter's first-hand eyewitness story of seeing and being with Jesus. Because at the end of 1 Peter, when he is writing his letter, he calls Mark his son in the faith. Which means their relationship was so close, he almost looked at him as a son to a father. So when Mark writes his account, because Mark wasn't there, Mark gets it first-hand from Peter. What we are reading in the book of Mark is essentially Peter's account as an eyewitness follower of Jesus Christ. So you think Peter remembered this? Oh yeah, he remembered this. Sure he did. The betrayal of these two, leaving him out and asking for the the top two places in the kingdom. And their open-ended question, by the way, is like a blank check. Grant us what we want before we actually tell you what it is. Ever had a kid do that to you? Run, just run. It immediately hints at an improper motive. Verse 36, And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? He wants them to name it out loud. What do you want me to do for you? Now, Mark, in putting together his account, if you didn't read ahead, you won't know this. It's the healing of Bartimaeus, the blind man. In the very next section, look at the last part of chapter 10. Just flip your Bible open. It's verses 46 through the end of the chapter. Jesus makes the same question, puts the same question to Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Mark deliberately puts these two stories back to back in his account because he wants us to contrast the motives and the request of these two different groups. James and John, who should have known better, who were the inner three of the disciples following Jesus, what is the request they make after three years of training? And what is the request then that Bartimaeus makes, who's a blind beggar on the side of the road? who has no training or education in anything, when he's confronted with Jesus, what does he ask for? By faith, he simply asks for his sight to be restored. Jesus grants it, and it says that he immediately followed him along the way. Mark says, which of the two is you? Whenever you read the Gospels, you must put yourself into the lens of the author. He is asking you to ask the question, which of these is you? Which is me? Am I James and John, or am I Bartimaeus? Am I glory-seeking with all the training in the world? Or am I by faith simply asking for sight that I might follow him? That's how you read the Gospels. That's why they put those stories back to back. So you will contrast them and ask penetrating questions of your own heart. 
Verse 37. And they, James and John, said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And there it is. In Jewish tradition, the master would be in the middle and the two most honored disciples would be on the right hand and the left hand. James and John are effectively asking for the two highest positions of power and glory in the coming kingdom of Jesus. That's the request. To their credit, they actually do believe that Jesus is the Messiah who will have a kingdom. That's a good start. They're believing correctly. He had said in chapter 9, verse 1, he told his disciples, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So he has predicted it. He's told them the kingdom's coming. He said there's power involved. He's then transfigured and they see it. So let's give them some credit. They do believe that he is the Messiah and will reign in power. They just want to cash in on it. Perhaps... Jesus will forcefully take the throne of David now that he's getting close to Jerusalem. For three years they've been building to this point, approaching Jerusalem. They can see it in the distance. In fact, the next chapter is the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. That's how it begins. We are at the end of his three-year ministry. It is climaxing now with coming into Jerusalem. They are not to be faulted for believing that he's a king or that a kingdom is near or that they will reign in power. Those things are clearly said by Jesus. However, what they fail to understand is that the path to glory is marked by suffering. The path to glory is marked by suffering. Neither do they understand that greatness in the kingdom of God as defined by Jesus is unlike the world. It is the opposite of the world. They don't yet get those two things. Verse 38, Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. You don't even understand the weight of your words. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, for us, we're thinking, what's he talking about, cup and baptism? There's two symbols he's using here. A cup was used as a symbol in the Old Testament of the wrath of God. I'm going to throw up on the screen for you Jeremiah 25, 15, and 16. It'll make it perfectly clear. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. That language is all through the Old Testament. A cup represents the will of God in judgment and suffering for sin, carried out, punishment. Jesus would use the same terminology, by the way, just a few days later in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember? What does he pray to God? If it is your will, what? Take this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. This cup of what? This cup of suffering and judgment for sin that I'm about to bear because I don't want it. That's what a cup represents. Jesus is saying, James and John, what awaits me in Jerusalem is not a crown, it's a cup. Not a crown, it's a cup of judgment for sin. That's what awaits me. And then he also calls it a baptism. Now, we're familiar with baptism, but not the way Jesus is using it. It's a symbol of judgment for sin. Again, in the Old Testament, going through deep or mighty waters was used as a picture of suffering and judgment from God to go through deep and mighty waters. They understood that concept. At his own baptism, you'll remember, three years earlier, Jesus identified with the people. What was the message from John when he baptized them? Remember, it was a baptism of repentance from sin. Remember? 
And Jesus identifies with that, not because of his own sin, but because he's identifying himself with the people he represents, of whom he is a member. He is identifying with them and their need and call for repentance from God, identifying with them. That same identification carries with him to the cross three years later, where he's identified with the sin of the people as he represents us before God. Isaiah 53, in predicting about the Messiah... 700 years earlier said, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus' identification in baptism is with the sin of the people, me, and the judgment we deserve, you and I. So Jesus says a cup of wrath for sin and a baptism of judgment against iniquity is what Jerusalem has in store for him. That's where he's headed. Notice he doesn't deny he's the Messiah. He doesn't deny that one day he will reign in glory. Those things are still true, but the path is much different than the disciples think. Jesus knows the path to glory runs through the valley of suffering. So he will soon receive in himself God's wrath against mankind's sin. That's the cross. That's Calvary. We wear it around our neck. We put it in our homes because it means It means salvation for us. But a cross is an execution symbol. And it represents the wrath of God poured out because of the sin of mankind. That's what Jesus has awaiting him. So he says to James and John, before the glory comes, I must first experience the wrath of God and suffering and judgment against the sin of mankind. Is that something you can handle? And James and John, verse 39, said to him, we are able. Oh. You're like, I could, have, I could have understood up to this point, but he just, how can you say that? That you can handle that? And Jesus said to them, mm-hmm, indeed, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. In their ignorance, perhaps arrogance. James and John say they're ready. They've had three years of training with a the master. They think they've learned everything they need to learn. They're good to go. Thank you for the training. When do I hit the road? I'm ready to reign and rule in authority. Just give me the scepter. I'll mete out justice like you've never seen it before. (laughs) Isn't that us? We think we're ready. What more do we need to learn? Their response indicates they still don't understand what Jesus has come to do. It's why he said, you don't even know what you're asking. Had they understood that Jesus had come to bear the weight of the sin of the world, they would never have responded like this. Never. Jesus answers, though, with a prediction. They will have their own cup in baptism. Not into the same purpose that Jesus has. Not to bear the sin of the weight of the world. The weight of the sin of the world. That didn't sound right. That's not what they're going to do. Their cup, their baptism is different. He doesn't mean suffering with the same purpose. He means the cost of being a follower of Jesus. We say here that we help people find and follow Jesus. Do we recognize that following Jesus has cost? Do we? And maybe in our country we haven't suffered that much yet. But if you are willing to stand for Jesus, to say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, he is unpopular in the world, he is scorned in our country, but I stand with him and I will never back down from that. I follow Jesus to the end. You will be ridiculed and mocked. At the least, you will be thought to be ignorant, unenlightened, still living in the dark ages with superstition. 
Jesus says, you will indeed have a cup and a baptism. You will indeed. To the purpose of following Jesus and the cost of that discipleship, all disciples are called. And that means us here today as well. We are called to count the cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. By the way, on a historical side note, James was eventually killed by King Herod. Acts chapter 12, verse 2. He was martyred by King Herod. John, in fact, was the only disciple to die of natural causes at an old age. But even John was persecuted and exiled to the island of Patmos. Remember that? He wrote Revelation from the island of Patmos where he had been exiled to live the rest of his days in isolation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, he says that. The church today still uses the symbols of cup and baptism, doesn't it? The cup for us is found in communion, which we will take at the end of this service. It represents the blood of Christ poured out for our sin. It still represents judgment against sin, but paid for by him instead of me. And baptism identifies us with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Why? For sin. For sin. Whenever we in the church practice communion and baptism, it is a visible reminder to us and everyone who watches that following Jesus means we count the cost because sin has a price. The very ordinances or sacraments, if you like that high language, of our faith are reminders of the cost of sin, the sacrifice it required, and the call to obedience and faithfulness that it demands from me, from you. Verse 40. But, Jesus says, to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. The glory that James and John seek from Jesus can only be granted by the Father himself. Someday, and to someone, those honors will be granted. That's the implications of the words for whom it has been prepared. There will be honor. But to whom and when? I don't know. You don't know. Jesus says, leave that to God. Leave the glory and the rewards to God. You have a job to do. Jesus says, look at me and what I'm doing. I'm not even worried about that. I am focused on the task at hand that the Father has given me. I have a mission to fulfill, and it must be accomplished. Now, if that's what our Savior would say, leave the glory and the rewards to God. Leave the exalting to God in his time at the proper place. He, after all, is the only one who can do so justly. Leave that to him, Jesus says, I'm staying on the mission. If Jesus will do that, how much more should you and I do that? Leave the rewards and the glory and the outcome to God. We stay on track. We stay on track as disciples. That's the call to us. If Jesus could do that, we must do that. He's the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. In very essence, he is God himself. And yet he says, I am walking a path of obedience to the Father, and I will not abandon my commitment. So you and I must do the same. If the master does it, how much more are the disciples? Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, uh oh. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were ticked. The anger of the other ten disciples betrays the fact that they wish they'd thought of it first. <laughs> they harbored similar ambitions for themselves. It probably bothered them. Because after James and John claimed the right and the left hand, what seats were left to them? Remember, they're all privileged, the 12 that have walked with Jesus for three years. They are all privileged men. 
So what? There's an inner three. Why are they better than we are? By responding in anger, Mark implicates them as he's listening to Peter tell the story. And Peter's got himself right in there. He knows he was angry too. Peter implicates them along with James and John. They were no better. They wanted the same glory for themselves. All disciples. They were in the same boat. Now, here we get a glimpse, another glimpse, this happens all the time, into the hearts of the men who walked most closely with Jesus, who were trained by him for three years. This, this is Jesus' great work. These men, wow, they're impressive, aren't they? <laughs> Guess what? They're human, like you and me. They're just like you and me. And that is actually encouragement in that. Do you not see yourselves in these disciples? And, and, and let's not play games. We like to think, well, if I were there 2,000 years ago, I would have recognized from the predictions of the Old Testament that he was the Messiah. And I would have followed him to the cross. I would have been afraid of nothing, and I would have stood there with my hands high. Right? And we'd all want to think that. Of course we do. Because in our heart of hearts, who wants to fail the Lord? But is it more likely that we would have been like the disciples? Yeah. In fact, let me ask you some penetrating let me, let me make some penetrating statements and you think about whether any of these apply to you. This is just thinking about myself. We truly want people to believe in Jesus and be forgiven. That's good. But we also want to see bad people suffer. Ever felt that way? How about this? We love the mercy of God that we have received, but we want justice for those who deserve it. Like, like we don't deserve it. How about this? We want the kingdom of God to advance in Greenville. But I want our local church to be higher than the rest. How about this? We want to serve in the church. We do. But we also want to be recognized and appreciated for our efforts. We want to make a difference in people's lives. We honestly do. But we also want to be thanked for it. We have zeal for God. But we also have selfish ambition for ourselves mixed in. Look, if we're honest, you and I are a mess of both good and bad motives every day of our lives. You can't extricate the one from the other. Nobody has ever reached that point. We're a mess of good and bad motives. But guess what? You're just like the disciples. And what did God do with them? What did God do with the disciples? After the resurrection, by the power of the Spirit, he changed the entire world. And the reason you and I sit here today is because of the faithfulness of these disciples whose lives were changed by the power of God. God would fill them, change them, use them, and multiply them over the last 2,000 years. If God can do that with these ordinary, power-hungry, selfish, honor-seeking disciples, he can do it with me. He can do it with you. But it doesn't come without heart change. Read on, verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Seeing their response, Jesus says, It's time to call a huddle, and I need to check them on their attitudes. In the world, there's a very clear sense of power and authority. It's clear. Those who have power lord it over those who do not. Those who are in charge are the rulers of those who are not. Those who are considered great exercise authority over those who do not. Are not. There is an evident distinction between the haves and the have-nots. Did you know when the President of the United States walks into an official presidential meeting or ceremony, do you know what happens? First thing that happens when he walks in the room, do you know what it is? 
a band plays Hail to the Chief. That's heady stuff. Can you imagine? Every time you walk into a room, Hail to the Chief? Bill Clinton, I heard him interviewed after he left the presidency, said he missed that. Who wouldn't miss that? (laughs) I can't blame Bill Clinton. I walk in the room and the band doesn't play anymore. We're actually going to start that here as one of our changes. (laughs) No, we're not. We're going to have Chris and the band play Hail to the Chief, and we're just going to nominate one of you every week, and you won't know. When you walk in the doors, we'll start playing. (laughs) No, we're not going to do that. In the first century world, it was the Romans who had the authority. The disciples knew it. They lived under the, impression, the oppression of the Romans every day of their lives. They had to use their money, pay their taxes. They had to submit to their laws, humble themselves under cruel men like Pontius Pilate. They knew what it was like to live under tyranny and oppression in the Roman Empire. They knew that really well. Jesus says that's what it's like in the world. You know it. I don't have to explain it to you. You know what it looks like. But verse 43, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Don't you like that Jesus says, I don't want it to be like that among you? It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Notice, Jesus doesn't say seeking to be great in and of itself is wrong. He says whoever would be great. Jesus does say, though, that his kingdom is not like the world. His followers have a different model of greatness. That's the key. Greatness in the kingdom of God is marked by humility and service toward others. Greatness in God's eyes, which is the same as greatness in the kingdom of God, greatness in God's eyes is found not in authority, power, or prestige, but in selfless love that seeks the good of another. That's great in God's eyes. This is seen, Jesus says, in the example of a servant. He picks a servant to give the example. Now Jesus would model for this, this for them in just a short few days. Do you remember what he did in the upper room, John chapter 13? What did he do the night he was betrayed? What did he do in that room? In just a few short hours, one of them would betray him and the rest of them would desert him. What does he do? Knowing that, it says, knowing all authority had come to him, he had come from the Father and he was going back to the Father. He knows exactly who he is, the Son of God. Knowing all of that, what did he do? He chewed them out because they should have known better. No. He got a towel, he got down on his hands and knees and he washed their feet. What a statement of service and love by the ultimate cosmic power to those who deserve it not. John 13, Jesus said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example. In our modern world of socks, shoes, office workers, cars, we don't really need feet washing anymore. Some denominations still practice this, by the way. But the principle has never changed. The principle has never changed. Do you and I make it a regular practice to serve each other in ways that are uncomfortable, inconvenient, and difficult for us personally? Because that's what foot washing is. You ever done that? I have done it two or three times. Because when you become an elder or deacon, somebody comes up with a crazy idea that would be a really good idea to wash each other's feet. It's disgusting. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's inconvenient. 
It's not comfortable. It's a little embarrassing. It's difficult. But it's serving. Do we do that? Do we make a practice in our lives of serving other people in that way or only what's convenient? Only when it fits my schedule. Look, I'm talking to myself too. That's what Jesus did for his disciples who would betray and desert him that very night. What is God asking you to do for someone else? I don't know the voice of God in your heart, but are you listening? Verse 44. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Notice again, wanting to be first, Jesus doesn't say that's wrong in and of itself. Whoever would be first. But he demands a complete reversal of the world's understanding of what it means to be first. The world defines being first in terms of greatness, power, authority, wealth, influence. Jesus defines greatness in terms of service to others. For the world, a slave represents what? The least important member of society, the one with no control whatsoever, no power at all. Jesus says a slave represents the highest expression of love. Why? Because their whole life is devoted toward helping someone else. So they're the perfect example of what it means to be great. Their life is devoted to helping someone else. You know, Peter would eventually get this. I love that fact that Peter writes two letters later on, about 30 years later, and we see the change, the marked difference in the man. After 30 years of ministry, in 1 Peter chapter 5, he writes as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And when he gets to chapter 5, he says, as a fellow elder, I appeal to the other elders. And he gives some instructions for elders. As a fellow elder? Peter's not an elder. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ who does miracles and walked with the Savior. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. (laughs) He says, as a fellow elder. He just thinks of himself as an elder. Shows the humility. Didn't say as an apostle. He says as an elder. And then he says, I want you to shepherd the flock. Shepherd, that's a tender word. Shepherd the flock. Not for personal gain or in a domineering way, he says, but as an example to the flock. You think Peter got it? He absolutely got it. And then he said this in verse 5. He says to everyone in the church, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter got it. God worked on him. God chiseled away at Peter's heart, but he got it. Greatness in God's eyes is achieved by choosing to humbly serve someone else because that's what Jesus did for you and for me. Who do you need to serve today? Who has God put on your heart that needs your humble, loving service? Let's end in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Many commentators say this is the climax of Mark's gospel. This is it. This verse, this is the key to his whole gospel. It doesn't get any better than this. Jesus backs up his upside-down statements. Servant, slave, they're the great ones. He backs it up with the example of his own life. His own life. Remember now, we're like, okay, Jesus, he's on earth. We We forget who Jesus is. When he says son of man, he's using a title for Messiah. We don't realize that because we don't know our Old Testament really well. Look at Daniel 7. Put it on the screen. Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Every Jewish person knew this prophecy. I saw in the night visions, Daniel said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Oh, a son of man. 
the title Jesus uses for himself. And he came to the Ancient of Days, another word for God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should what? Serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In using the title Son of Man, which is a messianic title, Jesus knows that his ultimate destiny is a kingdom of glory and power that will never end where all peoples of all time will serve him. They will bow the knee to him. He knows that. He knows that, and he uses that title. Yet, knowing that, he came to earth for what purpose? to serve you, to wash your feet, to give his life in your place because of an overwhelming love that you and I don't even comprehend. That is great. In the ultimate demonstration of selfless love, he says, I give my life as a ransom. I give it as a ransom. A ransom is a payment. That's all it is. It's a payment. In this context, for what? A payment for sin to satisfy the anger of God. It secures freedom or release. A payment that secures freedom. A release or freedom from what? Sin, death, condemnation, hell, you name it. All those things we fear. Freedom from those. Peter would explain this in the book of 1 Peter that he wrote when he said, you were ransomed. You can hear him listening to Jesus' words. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You were ransomed. Your debt was paid. At its most basic, the death of Jesus is a payment made by the perfect Son of God on our behalf, whereby he takes the wrath, the anger of God, for our sin upon himself as our substitute. That's what it means that we were ransomed. Our debt of sin was paid in full. And in exchange, we were given the righteous robes of Jesus to wear before God Almighty. What could be greater than that? Nothing. That's why scripture uses the language of love so many times. And sometimes in our theological concepts, we like to talk about it was the will of the Father that the Son should come. He planned it from before the foundation of the world. He's merciful. He's gracious. All those things are true. But Scripture uses the language of love for a reason, and it's replete. It's all over the place. The most famous verse in the entire Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates or shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look it up sometime. All the usages of love in the New Testament which refer to what Jesus did for us. Make no mistake about it. He was serving you and me. Selfless love. There's many things we, should, we could say about this statement where he says, I pay a ransom. His life was not taken from him. He gave it up. He planned to give it up. It was from the beginning of time. His death was not an accident. It had a very specific purpose. His payment wasn't forced upon him by the Romans where everything went bad at the last minute. No. It was planned from the beginning of time and he chose to give his life up willingly. If you ever watch PBS specials or those things about Jesus of Nazareth, it's all about how it was going great as an itinerant preacher and then the world and popular opinion turned against him and he was crucified at the last minute. Shucks, that didn't turn out the way he wanted. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says he planned it from the beginning, he predicted it, he went to it, he wouldn't turn away from it, and he accomplished it. 
in using his own life and death, he gives us a picture of what greatness looks like. He's not asking the disciples to do the same thing. He's asking them to have that mindset. Only Jesus can die for our sin. But what's the mindset? Paul got it in Philippians 2. Paul the apostle also understood it. Philippians chapter 2 says this in the beginning. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Hear him. He's hearing the words of Jesus in his mind as he writes this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then listen, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a what? Servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself as if he wasn't humble enough by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The world misunderstood, the world mocked, but God saw in what Jesus did true greatness. In a little over two weeks, we will choose a new president. Most of us are not terribly excited about either of the leading candidates. We've seen enough of the character flaws in both of them to know that they aren't likely going to serve our country with a godly humility and a selfless love that honors God and promotes his kingdom. Doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for them. Doesn't mean you shouldn't vote for who you think God wants you to vote for. But I think it's a fair statement to say it's unlikely that they will live like that. They may be considered great in the eyes of the world. They certainly will have great power for a season. But will they be great in God's eyes? That's a different question. Now, you're not president, and you're not likely to run for president. But the question I leave you with today is, what about you and me? We don't have the power, the prestige of the office of president of the United States, but God is still calling you to greatness in his kingdom. It's just that he defines it differently than the world. It's a good thing to want to be great in God's eyes. Jesus was great in God's eyes. He pleased his father. Do you want to please your father? then you choose greatness the way Jesus did. Humility, service, selfless love. That's what God calls great. Because greatness in God's eyes is demonstrated by his son's humble service. Where is God asking you to serve others? In what way is he calling you to follow the example of his son in humility toward other people? How does he want you to mirror his son's selfless love and sacrifice? Who does God want you to serve? Remember the words of our Savior as we close. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So I leave you with this question. How can you be great this week? Let's pray.